Today's scripture reading is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 14 through 27. In your pew Bibles, this is on page 823. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could, we, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of, must, of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is God's word. Thank you so much. Again, thank you, Mandy, for reading. And, and thank you so much to the choir. Uh, the joy to have you uh, with us this morning, joining us in worship, encouraging our hearts. Uh, thank you to the directors. Uh, thank you, Faith. And wonderful gift. Uh, go ahead and join me in prayer as we uh, take a look at God's word this morning. Gracious Father, thank you that there is a peace able to settle our souls despite whatever uh, tragedies and trials we face in this world. And that peace comes from you. Lord, we pray that we would see you more clearly this morning as we open your word. We pray, God, that uh, you would be on display, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts that you would give us ears to hear your voice, give us eyes to see you more clearly, and hearts that are ready to be changed by your grace, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not a, a particularly athletic person. Um, those of you, some of you may know that about me. If we've ever played knockout or wiffle ball or gaga or something, I'm basically there to make you look good. That's kind of the function that I play in sports. Um, however, there was a time in my life, actually mostly my college days, a little bit after that, when I was actually in shape. Uh, I was exercising regularly. I was actually gaining strength. It was kind of a, this amazing thing. And one of my favorite exercises uh, was push-ups. I used to do the perfect push-up. Have you ever seen that on TV? You know, that little thing that rotates and such? And at first, that thing owns you. I mean, you are crying. But after a while, if you keep at it, it's like, yeah, I can do this. I've got this. And uh, 
You know, you, you look in the mirror and it's like, wow, there's a, there's a muscle there I've never seen before. This is kind of cool. And then you get out of the habit of exercising. You know, life gets busy or, or, you know, whatever excuses come along. And so for several years now, I really have not done anything uh, much by way of exercise or, or uh, trying to stay in shape. Until recently, my wife Carissa has been encouraging me. I was going to say shaming, but I think encourage is the word I'm going to go with here. Uh, she has been encouraging me to exercise with her using a Jillian Michaels workout video called the 30-Day Shred. Anybody heard of this thing? Now, before you revoke my man card, let it be known that I have men, friends, burly man friends, who have dropped their gym memberships because of doing this video and it getting a better exercise out of it. So, don't judge me yet. Um, But part of that workout... I was happy to learn is doing push-ups. I'm thinking, I can do those. I, 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 I used to be able to do a certain number of push-ups. I've got that part. And so I'm down on the ground. Jillian's yelling at me. And, and, I, and I'm doing these push-ups. And after about three of them, my arms are like the legs of a newborn calf when it's trying to stand for the first time. I'm just like, you know, it was really pathetic. Uh, my wife was showing me up. I mean, you really should be ashamed of your pastor uh, when it comes to this. But when it comes to strength and endurance, it's pretty easy to presume that because of once upon a time I used to be able to do something, uh, that I can still do it even if I haven't been exercising and continuing to stay in shape. It's easy to presume that. It's also rather dangerous if what you're doing is something beyond push-ups, you know, lifting heavy furniture or something like that. You can injure yourself. In a very similar way, when it comes to serving God and being used by God, it's easy if God has used me in some way before to presume upon my faith rather than actually exercising that faith and depending upon him. Just to assume that God is going to show up, even though I'm quite lazy in my faith, and then to be surprised when he doesn't. That's kind of what the disciples experienced in the passage that we just heard read this morning. We've been working through the Gospel of Matthew as a congregation. We have a lot of visitors with us this morning. Uh, So we're going through Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament. And it tells the story of how God is establishing his kingdom on earth just as it is in heaven, through his eternal son, Jesus Christ. So last week, we followed Jesus up the Mount of Transfiguration at the beginning of chapter 17, where he revealed his glory to three of his closest disciples. This morning, we get to find out what was happening down below with the rest of the disciples while Jesus was up on that mount. While Jesus is showing his glory to Peter, James, and John, the rest of the twelve were being shamed by their inability to do something that they had done before, to cast out a demon and heal a sick boy. 
Matthew 17, verses 14 to 16. Again, if you've got a Bible, feel free to follow along. The words will also be on the screen behind me. Uh, Matthew 17, verse 14 says, And when they, which is Jesus and the three, came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For he often falls into the fire and often into water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. They could not heal him. Now, if we look at Mark's gospel, we learn a little bit more about this father and his son, the boy's condition, the father's compassion. But you can see right here in Matthew's text the urgency of the request, kneeling before Jesus, the humility of his request. His boy is suffering. Now, the word that's translated epilepsy may not necessarily refer to the same condition that we know by that name today. It's a word that can refer to multiple seizure-like disorders. In, in the Gospel of Mark, the father describes it specifically as demonic. Whatever it is, it's a violent condition. It's throwing him into fits, burning him, uh, throwing him into the water, nearly drowning him. It's something that no parent can stand to see their child suffering in that way. But he's heard that there's a man who can cast out demons and heal disease. And he's tracked this man down. He's found his followers and he's brought his son to them in, in hopes that they're going to be able to do something with his son's condition. Something nobody else can help him with. And they get there. And the disciples couldn't do it. They couldn't cast out the demon. They couldn't heal the boy. Which is interesting because they've done this kind of stuff before. Matthew 10, 1 says, And Jesus called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So these kinds of healings and exorcisms, uh, they were a sign that God's kingdom was dawning on earth through Jesus. The triumph over Satan that would happen in the end, the, the healing, the wholeness and restoration, the, the, the banishing of sickness and disease that will happen in the end, that was breaking into the present through Jesus and his ministry as a sign and as a foretaste of what would come. And he's given his disciples authority to participate in that ministry. These signs that, that, that the true king of heaven is finally here. So what is the problem here with this situation? Well, perhaps something that's even maybe a little more surprising than the disciples' inability to... Uh, do this is Jesus's reaction to their inability when he shows up in verse 17. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. 
That's not the kind of job performance review you want to hear from Jesus when he shows up. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. That's pretty harsh. In fact, this scene reminds us of another story in the Bible when a prophet went up on a mountain and and the glory of the Lord was beheld and then came down from that mountain only to find God's people uh, acting out in idolatry and unbelief. Moses in Exodus 32. In fact, the words that Jesus uses to describe the disciples and, and no doubt those around them, O faithless and twisted generation, that comes from the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, where Moses is recounting Israel's unfaithfulness to trust God. Now, I don't think Jesus is actually calling them, the disciples, out on perverse or twisted immorality or something like that. Rather, he's calling out their unbelief by associating them with ancient Israel when Moses disappeared on the mountain and by associating them with the unbelieving world that surrounds them. By this point in their training, they shouldn't need Jesus to have to show up and deal with this demon. He gave them authority to do it. But because of their lack of faith, They're no more helpful to this boy than anyone else in the crowd. And that's the central problem in this story. They have gone slack in their faith. So as as soon as Jesus heals the boy, the disciples come to him privately in verse 19, trying to figure out what went wrong. Uh, Verse 19, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, when Jesus speaks of little faith here, he's not talking about size. He's talking about quality. I mean, a mustard seed's pretty small, isn't it? And if you have faith that size, you can do the impossible. You can... You can Move a mountain. And so what they need is not giant faith. Tiny faith will do. But true faith. Faith that out of a deep personal trust expects God to work. It expects God to work. Their faith was out of shape. They had presumed that because once upon a time God used them to do something. That he would just kind of show up and do it again without them exercising any faith and dependence themselves. They got lazy in their faith, and then they were surprised when God didn't show up. And so here's the point. No one can expect to be used greatly of God who does not trust him deeply and commune with him regularly. Think about that. No one can expect to be used greatly of God who does not trust him deeply and commune with him regularly. In our effort to serve King Jesus, we cannot take him and our faith for granted. And we want to serve Jesus. You know, we want to be used by God. If you're a follower of Christ, there are few things that are more encouraging and exhilarating in life than seeing God use you to impact someone else's life. That's exciting. Now, If you're not a follower of Christ, that might not make very much sense. But think of it this way. 
Nobody tries out for a football team because they want to sit the bench the entire time. You know, the joy of being part of that team is being on the field and contributing to the goal, which is to win that game. As followers of Christ, we are part of a team. And there is and, and we have a goal, we have a mission to see Christ magnified in every heart. And so there's a joy and an excitement in being used by God unto that end for the sake of that mission. We want to be used by God. And God wants to use his people. God wants to use his people to change lives for his kingdom. That's why he gave his apostles authority. Jesus could have snapped his finger and done all of this by himself. But in his mercy and his grace and his love, he wants to use his children. That's why he gave the apostles the authority that he did. That's why he gives the entire church the commission that he does at the end of Matthew's gospel. You know, telling them to go and make disciples of all nations. God wants to do the impossible. And that, that, that metaphor of moving mountains, that's a common metaphor in scripture for something that's impossible. God wants to do the impossible through weak and lowly vessels like us. Because he loves us. And because if he does the impossible through us, there's no way we can take the credit for it, can we? When he uses a lowly, unworthy vessel like us, he gets all of the glory, which he alone deserves. But if we are to be used by God, if we are to see him at work in and through our lives, to see the lives of others changed, We cannot presume upon him and let our faith get lazy and out of shape. We must trust him with a true faith, with a genuine faith. So what does that genuine faith and dependence on God look like? Well, first, it's expressed in prayer. It's expressed in prayer. Genuine faith is expressed in prayer. If we were to look over to Mark's gospel to the parallel account of this story, where Matthew emphasizes genuine faith as the problem, Mark emphasizes the centrality of prayer. So Mark 9.29 says, And Jesus said to them, This kind of demon cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And those two things go hand in hand, faith and prayer. Prayer is simply trust in action. So it's our dependence on God in action. It's recognizing that God is God, I am not. And so that if if something's going to happen here, he's going to have to show up and do it. And then asking him to do it. It's going and seeking him to to do it, to to show up and to, to do what is needed to be done. And, you know, as a congregation, we want to see God use Westgate to change people's lives. We want to see God change our hearts, and we want to see God use us uh, to change lives through us. But the question I've had to ask myself as I've been studying this passage this week, am I actually praying and asking God to do that, or am I just assuming that he will? And there's a subtle difference between those two things. It's like, yeah, I know God does that kind of stuff, But I'm not actively depending on him and asking him to do it. If I'm not asking, I'm not really depending much, am I? So we cannot presume 
upon God. We need to pray to him with faith and ask him to work. Genuine faith is expressed in prayer. But then there's the question of what does that prayer look like? Uh, There are two other stories that make up the rest of chapter 17. And each of those stories shows us another way in which the disciples didn't quite grasp who Jesus is and what he came to do. And without grasping who he is and what he came to do, it's very difficult to trust him deeply, isn't it? Or to pray effectively to him. And so we must pray, but we must also pray in the right direction. Pray with the right focus. As Jesus said earlier, it's not so much about the size of our faith, but the direction of it. And so one author explains, if you want to see the moon, the size of the window you're looking through isn't important. What matters is that it's facing in the right direction. A tiny slit in a wall will do if the moon is that side of the house. A huge window facing in the wrong direction will be no good at all. That's what true faith is like. The smallest prayer to the one true God will produce great things. The most elaborate devotions to a God of your own making or indeed someone else's will be useless or worse. So we have to pray in the right direction, praying to Jesus as he truly is and in accordance with what he came to do. And that's what the next two stories reinforce for us. So first, we have to pray in accordance with Jesus' mission. In accordance with his mission. The disciples were still confused about what exactly Jesus came to do. And we see that confusion in their reaction when he predicts again his coming death and resurrection. Look at verses 22 and 23 with me back in Matthew 17. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. They were greatly distressed at that news. So Jesus is revealing to them the heart of his mission. The way that he would come and establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The way that he would rescue people from their sin. The way that he would make right everything that is wrong and broken in this world. The way God was going to accomplish all of that. Jesus is revealing that to his followers. That it would come through him laying down his life on the cross. And taking it up again in the resurrection. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of Jesus's mission. The reality that all humans, not just ancient Israel, whom Jesus is dealing a lot with here, all humans, all nations, we've all rebelled against God in some way, whether big or small, and are therefore deserving of his righteous judgment. Yet God in his love and his mercy sent his eternal son to rescue us from that. He did not want to leave us there, but he sent his son to rescue us and to reestablish his rightful rule over creation. And that son, Jesus, is going to accomplish his father's work through 
living a perfect life in our place, doing everything we failed to do, uh, being faithful to his father right where we mess up, taking our sin, our, our rebellion, and the cost of that, the penalty of that, on himself on the cross as a willing sacrifice and exhausting God's holy anger against our sin in himself on the cross. But then rising from the dead on the third day, conquering death and giving new life to everyone who will come to him in faith and believe, who will, who will turn away from sin and turn to Jesus in faith. That is the heart of the gospel. That is the power of God's kingdom. The disciples didn't quite get that, that yet. They heard the heart of the message and they were distressed and sad because it meant Jesus was going to die. And, and of course, Eventually, they will get it. And unless we get it, unless we see that the heart of who Jesus is and what he's come to do is in the death and resurrection of Christ and what he accomplishes through that, unless we see that, it's very difficult to be used by him because everything we pray for and trust him for, we will ultimately turn around and make about ourselves. If we're unclear on Jesus's mission... We're going to basically hijack the faith and make it about us instead. There's an incredible temptation to do that. And so praying in the right direction. We must pray, but we must pray in accordance with Jesus' mission. We must pray keeping the gospel in mind at all times. That gives us the focus we need for our prayers. So I, I don't just want God to use me so that, to make people happy. I want God to use me so that they will be happy in Jesus, so that they will find the satisfaction and security and significance that he alone is able to offer. That's what I want God to use me for. And so keeping the gospel in mind gives focus to my prayers. I'm not just trying to rescue somebody from a hard situation. I want them to meet and depend on Jesus. And it gives us great expectations in our prayers too. Because if Jesus has already done the heavy lifting for what it's going to take to change lives, if he's already gone to the cross and resurrection and been faithful to that, then I can trust him to apply what he accomplished to their lives by his spirit. I can pray with expectation that Jesus will show up. He's proven his faithfulness already. And so we must pray in accordance with Christ's mission. But second, we also need to pray in accordance with who Jesus truly is with who he truly is, his identity. And that's something that Peter was still confused about in verses 24 to 27. So look at verse 24 with me. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take their toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now this Sometimes it's called a half-shekel tax, a two-drachma tax. Uh, those were measures of, of money uh, in the ancient world. It was an annual tribute that was collected from 
all Jews everywhere to support the work of the temple. So once a year you gave two drachma that would go to support the work of the temple. And this is something that goes all the way back to Exodus 30. So when a collector comes and asks Peter whether Jesus, his teacher, pays this tax, Peter defends him and says, yes. But notice what Jesus then says to Peter in the very next scene. He quickly explains to them, because of who he is, Jesus, that his payment of the temple tax is not an obligation. It's a concession. It's something he does so as to avoid offense, but it's not something he's obligated to do because of his identity. So in you know, an earthly scheme, in an earthly kingdom, the king doesn't collect tax from his children, but from his citizens. So in the heavenly kingdom... Since Jesus is not just a citizen, but he's God's eternal son, he's under no obligation to pay that tax. In fact, he himself is going to replace the temple later. And so he's kind of saying to Peter, you know, I appreciate your defense, but don't let that confuse you about who I really am. I'm not just another citizen like everyone else. I'm the, I'm the king's son. And so therefore... We're going to pay the tax so as to avoid the offense, but don't let that cause you to lose sight of my true identity. I am God's eternal son. It's hard to trust Jesus deeply if we're confused about who he is. It's hard to trust him deeply to be used by him if we're confused about his mission. It's also hard to trust him deeply if we're confused about who he truly is. And it's popular today to make Jesus into whoever we want him to be. The, I like to think of Jesus as syndrome. Uh, It's funny how quick we are to apply that to things of religion sometime, but apply that to your boss someday. I like to think of my boss as really my employee, my servant. You know, he's just kind of exists to make my workday go well. Nobody really ever would would attempt something like that because you'd be looking for a job quite quickly after that. So it doesn't really matter who we like to think of Jesus as. The question is, who is he? Who is he? And who has he revealed himself to be in the scriptures? Jesus, as we see just in our passage alone, is the one who has all power over creation to undo the effects of the fall, to restore what is broken by sin and by disease. He's the one who will accomplish all of that through his death and resurrection. He is God's eternal son, descended from heaven and now ascended and seated at his right hand, ruling over us interceding for us as we speak. Genuine faith expressed in prayer must pray in that direction, keeping the truth of who Jesus is in mind. And only when we pray to Jesus as he truly is will our prayers be effective. And then to see God use us. And that's what I want us to to do this morning. That's what I want to invite us to do this morning, to pray to God, to Jesus as he truly is and in accordance with his mission, what he came to do, to apply the life-changing power of his death and resurrection to hearts and lives 
everywhere. So in a moment, we're going to have just a, a couple minutes to pray silently right where you are. You don't have to get up or go anywhere. And honestly, you don't have to pray. Nobody's obligated to do that, though I invite you to do so. I encourage you to try. Uh, for some of us, that prayer may simply be, God, show me if you're truly there. Maybe we've spent our whole lives looking for the moon, if you will, and convinced that it's not there and, and trying to tell others that it's not there, but we've been standing on the wrong side of the house the whole time. And so we need to pray and ask God to give you faith to see his son, to meet him as he truly is, and to know and trust him as Savior and King. For others among us, the prayer might be very similar, but not for the same reasons. Not necessarily because we've denied the existence of the moon, but because we've always just assumed it's there, but we've never personally looked at it ourselves. We've never actually come to grips with the depth of our sin and put our faith personally in Christ. We've gone through the motions, going to church, all that kind of stuff our entire lives, but we're just taking other people's word for it. We're not trusting Jesus personally. And so your prayer, again, might be similar. You know, Lord, give me faith to see Jesus. Give me faith to see my sin for what it is and to see your son and his grace for who he is. For still others, you know, we may have trusted Jesus. We, we believe the gospel, but perhaps we've fallen asleep. It's been a while since we've looked out the window and really looked to an active dependence on Jesus. Or, or to return to the exercise analogy I started with, we've gotten out of shape in our faith. We're assuming God and his presence, but we're not actively depending on him. And so our ability to trust God is also, therefore, out of shape. It doesn't mean we're not really busy serving him, by the way. Falling asleep with respect to our dependence on God is not the same thing as being lazy. You can be super busy with lots of church activities, but be depending on yourself for all of that and not on the Lord. And so we need to ask God to wake us up, to wake us up to the beautiful reminder of who Jesus is, of what he's done for us, what, what the choir sang earlier, my sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. To, to ask God to wake us up to that truth once again and what Christ has done for us. And then to pray that God would use us, that others might be woken up as well. We want to be used by God. As a congregation, we, we want to be a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ. But no one can expect to be used greatly of God who does not trust him deeply and commune with him regularly. So we must pray, and we must pray in the right direction, lest our faith get out of shape, or we find ourselves unprepared when God calls us to do the impossible. And so let's spend a few minutes just in the quiet. Now, I'll, I'll pray and close us uh, in a moment. But I just want to encourage you to spend a few minutes talking with God.
praying to him for who he truly is and in accordance with his mission, what he came to do. And asking God by his grace to use you, to use you for his purposes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word, you say in your word, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So Lord, we want to abide in you, to commune, to relate, to depend on you, just as a branch is dependent on a vine. We want our life to, come from you, and we want to bear fruit for you. We want to be used for your glory, God. So give us faith. Wake us up, Lord. Strengthen our devotion. Deepen our faith. Be our refuge and our strength. Use us for your purposes, God. Lord, we pray that your will would be accomplished in making your name known in the Metro West. That you would use us and other churches in this area, Lord, all who love you and know you, that you would use us to reflect your love and grace to our neighbors and friends. That we would be willing to lay our lives down and to love them the way you have loved us. That we would be faithful to point them to Christ. That by your grace, you might redeem And restore what is broken in the lives of those around us. And Lord, we pray that your will would be done in and through us as a congregation, Lord. Keep us tethered to your word. Keep us devoted in prayer. Keep us depending on one another in relationship. Keep our ministries focused on your gospel and the power of your cross. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would minister to those among us who are hurting. Lord, we pray for those who are uh, dealing with financial struggles. God, would you be with them and meet their needs? For relationships that are broken, God, would your grace and your gospel be sufficient to make new what has been strained? Lord, we pray for those who are hurting physically, Lord, we Thank you for Davis Bates' progress and recovery and the chance for him to go home soon. Lord, we pray for John Quazo, God. Would you bring healing to his body? Lord, we thank you for a successful emergency surgery. We pray, God, that you would restore his his spinal system and and, and how all of that works and give him the ability to, to use his legs and walk again, God. And we pray as he's in the ER for a possible infection that you would just fight that off and and protect him, God. 
Lord, we pray for those who battle cancer. For Mary Boy. For Bob French. For Ruth Hepp. For Bob Norcross. Lord, would you continue to have your hand on them? And would you remind them that your power is sufficient? Lord, we recognize that that you're the one who determines the course. And we submit to that, God. But we know and pray that you would bring complete and full healing in in their lives, God. We pray that you would do the impossible by your spirit. And Lord, we pray that your work would be done through our missionaries. We think of the crooks, especially this morning, and their work in Italy. Would you be with them to raise up a light for your gospel in a dark nation? Lord, we want to be used by you. And so therefore, God, we confess our need to depend on you. May you be our shelter. May you be our delight. May you be all our need, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.